Ben Roethlisberger said today that the result of the Steelers-Patriots game was God's will. Wow. If God is rooting for the Patriots, then that shoots down my previous theory that the Patriots have been making a deal with the devil since the tuck rule. But maybe Big Ben is right, because God has clearly forsaken the Steelers against his Patriots for about a decade and a half now. And he keeps letting Gronk and Brady drink from the Holy Grail and eat the forbidden fruit. Wait, does that make Giselle Eve or the Virgin Mary or Mary Magdalene? Now I'm confused. I am Tim Benson for Mark Madden. That pretty much taps me out for biblical references, so feel lucky about that. We talk about the Steelers with the Steeler Wire reporter Neil Kulong in the 5 o'clock hour and Stan Savard in the 4 o'clock hour. Jake Caulfield on those Penguins trades, which we'll get to momentarily here on 105.9 The X, your home for the Pens after a loss last night against the Avalanche. So lots of hockey talk to be woven in here as well. But we start with the Steelers, and I think, I think the ability to move on from the robbery of Jesse James at the goal line. Let's just say for the sake of argument that we are all agreed that Jesse James's touchdown should have been overturned. Now, none of us think that, but for the sake of argument, let's assume that the right call was made and a good rule is in place. It isn't, and it wasn't, but let's assume that for the time being. If that had been the case, the city's streets would have been bathed in the blood of Ben Roethlisberger, Mike Tomlin, and Todd Haley. Because the offensive sequence after the Jesse James TD was overturned appeared to be a gong show. It was a Chinese fire drill in black and gold. Steelers fans had every right to ask numerous questions about how that game played out aside from and after the Jesse James ruling. First of all, Why run a crossing pattern with such little chance of getting out of bounds on second down to Darius Hayward Bay? Then, instead of spiking the ball, the coaching staff sent in a late play and Roethlisberger was then nuts enough to throw it into massive traffic. Why? It was foobarred from the start. The only eligible receiver who went into a pattern was Eli Rogers, not Antonio Brown, mind you, or the modern incarnation of Jerry Rice, Eli Rogers. So throw the ball away, Ben, if it's less than 50-50, and it was like 20-80. Kick the field goal and live the fight in overtime. Had it not been for all of Pittsburgh hating on the officials, we'd be clobbering those three guys all week long. So if you didn't get a chance to do so yesterday and you want to today, feel free. The number is 412-333-9939. Some of that was explained today by Ben and Tomlin, although I don't know if explained is really the word I should be using. I don't know if it was explained enough to my satisfaction. I wonder if it was explained enough to your satisfaction. Maybe I should just watch my verbiage here, maybe watch my word choice a little bit better because it, it was more acknowledged by Ben than it was explained. And what I mean by that is, to his credit on his radio show today, Ben more or less took the blame for why things didn't go better in that situation. He acknowledged that he could have made a better throw to Eli Rogers. He acknowledged that maybe he should have thrown the ball away instead of attempting to squeeze it into Eli Rogers. But he thought that he could make a play. I guess I get that. But most importantly, he acknowledged that the team should have had two plays ready to go in the huddle if second down was tackled inbounds as it ended up being instead of having the 
frenetic chaos that took place where half of the eligible receivers were expecting the spike and the other half weren't. Tomlin's explanation to me, though, was less satisfying. And actually, not as much from the standpoint of coaching, per se, but about the interaction between the refs and the coaches. First of all, Tomlin and Ben both say they didn't want to burn a timeout after the Juju Smith-Schuster catch. They both said that official Tony Corrente misidentified a signal from Ben to Tomlin as a timeout as they were running down the field following Juju running down the field. Tomlin says the only timeouts that are supposed to count are the ones that come from the bench in those circumstances. To me, that's not quite as big of a deal as some people are making out to be bond for the review. I'll tell you why later, but that timeout being burned there, I don't think was the crisis point that some people are making it out to be, despite what happened in the next few downs. The more pertinent stuff is what happened during the James overruled score. The Steelers are getting crucified, and rightfully so, for not having two plays called in the huddle as we talked about with Roethlisberger earlier. And apparently, part of the reason why is that the Steelers were prepared for a play that was never going to happen courtesy of a hypothetical from the officials. Here, take a listen to Tomlin today at his press conference. This is Tomlin today speaking with the media about what the conversations were like between the officials and the Steelers and the Steeler coaches themselves as the review was going on. Take a listen. Um, it starts kind of with the review um, and what potentially could happen coming out of the review. We had a couple scenarios, and, um, you know, there was obviously touchdown, drive-over scenario. Um, there was a scenario that, that transpired that, uh, was ruled incomplete, but there was also another scenario that was probably more critical and more time-specific that was being discussed. It was being discussed by us. It was presented to us by the officials during the review process um, that if he gets ruled completed catch down inbounds, um, that was probably the most significant element of the discussion as we approached the last play. While they were in review, um, that was being discussed. Because if his knee was down in the field of play, there would be a 10-second runoff. They'd spot the ball, wind the clock, and we'd be faced with a running clock in that circumstance. So that probably was the most significant element of the discussion when they were in review, and that was presented to us by one of the officials, that they may come out with a completed ball in the field of play, and he gave us an alert that that may include a 10-second runoff and a running clock. So obviously, 10-second runoff, running clock, that's the scenario that, that maintained most of our attention uh, in terms of what could happen as they came out of review. What did happen when they came out of review, obviously, is probably the least of the scenarios from my expectation, which was it be ruled an incomplete pass. Serious question here. After all that, serious question. Why were the refs warning the Steelers to brace themselves for the potential of a running clock, and why did the Steelers have to waste time preparing for it when that call was never going to happen? He wasn't close to being touched down by a defender. Harmon for New England practically pulls up from touching him at all because it's so clear James got into the end zone. What were the officials suggesting there? That somehow he had possession and pulled it back from the goal line, and that cursory pat on the back from Harmon is what touched him down? In other words, are the refs even being properly told what the review is about? I mean, geez, how many layers of screwed up is this? 412-333-9939.
By the way, Eli Manning said today he likes the catch rule and thinks it's clear. Well, here's what is really clear to me, that Peyton got the brains in that family. Maybe Cooper did, too. For the record, if there had been a 10-second runoff from the point where he uh, went down to the ground and went across the goal line from where the clock stopped on the perceived touchdown... The Steelers then would have had 18 seconds from the one-yard line to run two plays. Clock stopped at 28. That's when James broke the goal line and they stopped the clock to indicate touchdown. So you run off 10, it would have been 18, running clock, snapped the ball. So you have two plays then at that point to throw an incompletion or a touchdown and to decide what you want to do on fourth down. Kick the field goal or go for it on fourth down, which Tomlin suggested today they were more than likely going to go for the field goal, tie the game, which I think was the smart move to do. That's just my opinion. Uh, it's not the dumbest thing in the world if they've gone for it, though, because if the Patriots get the coin flip, they're going the length of the field. Gronk gets seven more passes thrown his Seven, who am I kidding? Four more passes thrown his way, and it's a touchdown. I, th- I think we all know that's coming. So it's basically you're hoping for the coin flip then in that scenario. But a runoff wouldn't have crushed the Steelers. But that rule is going to screw someone, too. You Actually, from what I read, it's and I didn't realize this, I forgot about this, Golden Tate at the goal line against the Falcons, it screwed the Lions already. Why should a team be penalized for a ref screw-up by virtue of a running clock? And, and I get the theory. The notion is, the, the, the perception is, well, you don't want to have a team benefit by virtue of a running clock in that scenario. And, and sometimes, like you know, the, the clock stops, the play stops, everybody runs up in the line of scrimmage. You don't want to benefit a team in that scenario if there was a screwed-up play by the refs. I get it. But you don't have to apply two-way thinking and then punish a team that doesn't deserve it. Like, you could apply common-sense thinking there and say, if the team benefits by the clock stopping, punish them. If the team doesn't benefit, then don't screw them. You know, the Steelers lost a touchdown, (laughs) and then the overrule hurts them. So you made the wrong call. How does your wrong call then benefit the Steelers, and why should they be pinched by 10 seconds coming off the clock? It doesn't make any sense to me. Again, 412-333-9939. We've got people lined up that want to talk about this. Uh, When we come back, I am also going to allow you to get in on the Penguin conversation, too, with the trades that happened today. If you missed the details, I will give them to you when we come back here on 105.9 The X. And now the super genius, Mark Madden. I would want total and absolute autonomy. Hey, Mark. Great show. Are you part psychic? Well, I'm actually more neurotic than psychic. The X at 105.9. The Steelers have signed a running back to replace James Conner. It's Stephen Ridley, uh, formerly of the Jets and for a long time the Patriots. He played four years with New England, ran for... 12 touchdowns and 1,200 yards back in 2012, but he fell out of favor following the 2013 season, largely because he lost four fumbles. And that's why he was kind of put into the Belichick doghouse. He did, as a rookie, return 152 yards worth of kicks. Let's be clear. He's being brought in for one reason and one reason only, and that's to pump him for information as to whether or not Gronkowski and Brady have any food allergies. Like... Do any of them, do either of them have a peanut allergy? And if so, then the Steelers will just cover the visiting locker room in Jif or Peter Pan the next time the Patriots come to town. Maybe if they swell up and start to hyperventilate or whatever, that way Gronk and Brady won't slice them and dice them to death. 
We'll get into that in just a little bit, too. Uh, by the way, if you missed the news earlier here on your home for the Pens, the Penguins did make a couple of trades. Uh, they dealt Josh Archibald, which I don't agree with, uh, Sean McGuire as well to the Arizona Coyotes. Obviously, Tockett likes Josh Archibald, right? And they got Michael Layton in return. Uh, they also picked up from Dallas a big defenseman, six foot seven, two hundred fifty-five pound Jamie Oleksiak. Um, he hasn't been playing very much in Dallas, as Jonathan Bambuli sort of suggested in his story with us at the Trib that this might be a way to stockpile some D-depth if they do, in fact, trade Ian Cole. Uh, so I guess I get it more there. I like Cole a lot better than I do this guy, particularly since he's not a very good skater. Uh, Cole is more mobile, and um, he's a better penalty killer and shot blocker. According to what uh, was written here by Jonathan, he gets about two minutes of ice time on the PK uh, for the Stars per game. So, yeah, um, not exactly what I think the Steelers, the Penguins rather, are looking for to put them over the top. The whole thing about this is, is there a precursor coming? Is this a precursor to a bigger move? Like, especially the Leighton thing. He's got a two-way contract, so he can provide goaltending depth for you. But I don't know why they're hung up, if they are, on sending Jari back to the minors so he can get playing time. He is always going to be Matt Murray's backup. Always. That's going to be his job. So, again, I don't want to go too crazy about this in case this is a move. Like, if Jari showed enough that there's some team out there that's wowed by him, and they can get some significant return for Jari now and the future, then okay. Then I get bringing in Leighton because now you want a veteran who's better than Casey DeSmith. Uh, okay, so I'm not going to go too nuts on this, but if this is just a move to put Jari back in the minors because we want him to get more playing time, I never have figured out what the concern is there since he's always going to be Matt Murray's backup anyway so long as he's here. 412-333-9939 if you want to mix in some Penguins talk as well. We will talk more pens with Jay Caulfield coming up in just a little bit here. Tim Benz in for Mark Madden on the X. Let's go to Patience in Green Tree. Go ahead, Patience. You're on 105.9 The X. Hey, Tim. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Go ahead. Hey, I just wanted to say um, I'm not one of uh, Mike, Tom's, Mike, Tomlin's, Mike Tomlin's biggest fans. And uh, even Coach Cowher said yesterday, according to Ed Bouchette, that uh, – Cower criticized Haley and uh, Tomlin during that uh, official review of the James catch. They could have used that crucial time right there to go over, to be more prepared of what to do next. It seemed like Cower was pretty upset. If that was Cower on the sidelines, Cower pays more attention to in-game specifics than Tomlin, and this is one of the reasons why I feel Tomlin lacks uh, being a great coach besides the clock management. Like okay, a couple of things on that, because you're not entirely wrong, but I always hasten to make the Cower versus Tomlin comparisons because those two are way more similar than anybody in Pittsburgh wants to admit. Because as you will recall, um, you know, when it comes to the ebbs and flows of Cower's career, he was also largely credited for being more of a motivator and more of a game management guy than he was, or sorry, motivated than he was a game management guy. That Cower, for the most part, now we look back at him and think that every mistake that Mike Tomlin is making, Cower would have done something better, and I don't see that being the case. Uh, I think I think Cower would have gotten equally messed up when it came to uh, that situation, especially with the way we just described it, with the refs coming over and focusing so much more on this whole clock running with 10 seconds coming off. I, I think that's what bogged them down. I mean, you're right, Patience. They definitely should have had that extra call. They definitely should have had that extra play ready to go. 
But uh, to be frank with you, I don't know if Cower executes that any better than Tomlin. Let's go to Steve in Delmont. Hi, Steve. You're on 105.9 The X. What's up, Tim? How are you? Uh, I think a big point that like people are missing is that like the Steelers shouldn't even have been in that situation to begin with with the 30 seconds left in the game. So that fourth and one, they decide to punt. The Patriots are going to score no matter what. So you might as well just go for it. If you, if you get it, then you keep the ball. If you don't get it, Patriots score a touchdown. And now you have more clocks to work with. So, well, I don't know. I think no, I, I, I think you punted in that situation, but I don't think you run the play that they ran. All right, let me put it to you this way. And again, and thanks for the call, Steve. Ben described this today on his radio program, and, and I listened pretty closely to what he said. He said that the primary read on that third down play is Juju Smith-Schuster coming underneath. And he flashed open, so Ben threw him the ball. And he went back and he realized when he looked on film how open Eli Rogers was. And he said that whoever it was that was guarding Eli uh, got shaken, slipped something, and Eli was wide open. But Eli was only, as Ben said, the third or fourth guy in that read. I have more of a problem with throwing in a play for that situation where the primary guy that you're throwing to runs in front of the sticks that play should be designed, the primary read, whoever it is, should be at least five yards down the field. You see, he should be beyond the sticks. So what was that, fourth and one with 2.16 left? You know, don't you think that the, Patri- the Patriots are smart enough to manipulate the clock so that the Steelers are going to be left naked anyway? Like, that's the part of this whole conversation that people never want to bring up about that play, is that the Patriots could have then manipulated this whole thing. Oh, we'll just let them score quickly. What, you think Belichick's going to let that happen? You know, he's going to manage the clock a little bit, too. You know, for everything, you know, we're just talking about this. If Tomlin is no good at managing the clock, Belichick's better at it. He's not going to just let the Steelers do to them what they want to be done. Uh, but my bigger issue with that sequence is not the decision to punt. It's the type of play that was sent in on third down, which gave you the prospect of being tackled short of the sticks. Scott, who is calling from Scott Township. Scott, you're on 105.9 X. How's it going, Tim? Good. All right, so I I have to agree. It baffles me how many things went wrong in that game, and I don't know if it's, you know, afterthought, but uh, I hadn't known about the refs telling the coaches about the potential uh, for the clock runoff. Um, well, no one did until today. That's brand-new information. Okay. I mean, even so, I don't see how there's any other option at that point other than clocking it and uh, either kicking the field goal or going for it on fourth. Oh, no, I, I don't know about that. Like, why do you think that they couldn't run a play? I mean, they obviously could. There was going to be time left. You just throw the ball into the end zone. So I don't have a problem with them deciding to go for it. What I have a problem with is, in that situation, not eating the ball when you realize that the whole team doesn't know a play is coming. Like, when, unless Eli pops wide open on that, Ben has to just throw it away. Right, and I think that is Ben's fault. Um, if I'm in that situation, the only play I'm calling is a fade to Bryant, and obviously he wasn't on the field, which is why I think they should have spiked it. Oh, that's another thing. Yeah, and, and thanks for that, Scott. Um, Martavis Bryant should have been on the field. For as little faith as I have in Martavis Bryant, if he's not on the field in that situation, and a special teams guy like Darius Hayward Bay is, a guy who also isn't renowned for his hands, then why do you have Martavis on the team? Especially after he played as well as he did in the first half. If there was ever a game where you were going to trust Martavis, 
it would have been that game since he obviously earned your trust for what he did in the first half, or he should have. Malvin in Monroeville. You're on 105.9 The X. Hey, I just wanted to talk about, uh, I heard you mentioning um, the media, the coaches and players talking about two plays being called in the huddle. You know, this is 2017. That's not even necessary. Every team can call plays at the line of scrimmage on every single play, number one. Number two, if they can just, they can just in their two-minute offense, they already have five or six plays that are designed to play, and they say number one, number two, number three, number four. So two plays called in the huddle is not even necessary. You can do that. People do that in high school now. Yeah, but you have to know exactly which play is coming, and you have to know what the scenario is after what happened on second down. I think that's what they're getting at. You know, in that goal line situation, you have to have a default at least, and Ben at the line, whatever their audible is or whatever their call is from whatever point they get to, because that matters too, Malvin, is how far they get before the guy is tackled in bounds, right? Right, but every two-minute offense has, has at least one or two running plays and then four or five passing plays. So no matter what the situation is, there's something to cover it. If, you're, you if your suggestion you is the Steelers made it harder on themselves, okay, thanks for the call, Malvin. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If your suggestion is the Steelers made it harder on themselves than what they should have, you're right. But I don't think it's overall as simplistic as you're suggesting either, especially since the quarterback, one who's not afraid to gunsling, one who is not prone to taking the conservative play in Ben Roethlisberger, was thinking clock the ball. He had to be told he wasn't clocking the ball. That is very anti-Ben. Like, Ben's instinct is to go for it at all. Look at the throw. I mean, just look at the throw for an example. He didn't have to make that throw, and he decided to do it. So with that instinct being in Roethlisberger as it is, obviously there was some thought there amongst the players that it wasn't the most prudent thing to do to go for it in the first place, and that clocking it and living to hope you win the coin toss was a better option. 412-333-9939. We'll talk more Penguins with Jay Caulfield. He joins us. We'll also mix in some news or at least some talk about the proposed Garrett Cole trade. We'll get to that, and we continue to talk about the Steelers, too. Tim Benson for Mark Madden on 105.9 The X. This is Ian Cole of the Pittsburgh Penguins. You're listening to Mark Madden and the best hockey talk on 105.9 The X. Tim Benson for Mark Madden. You can catch all the games here on The X for the Pittsburgh Penguins. In case you're just tuning in, the Pens have made some trades today. About to be joined by Jay Caulfield from AT&T Sportsnet. Uh, you can see him during pregame, postgame intermission with all of his analysis of Penguin games, which unfortunately haven't gone as positively as we hoped in this defense of the Stanley Cup for Pittsburgh. We'll get into that in just a second. Here are the trades as we bring Jay on. First and foremost, Penn sent Josh Archibald and goalie prospect Sean McGuire to Arizona for Michael Layton, the goaltender that you might remember. Uh, got the Flyers to the Cup final. Also a sixth-round pick in that deal in exchange for Leighton and a fourth-round pick. Then the next layer to the trades were Alexiak uh, from Dallas, the uh, big defenseman, six foot seven, 255 pounds. Josh, uh, make that Jamie Alexiak. He comes to Pittsburgh uh, in exchange for a fourth-round pick, sort of a reclamation project, picked 14th overall in the 2011 NHL draft. Jay, what do you make of these deals? Hey, Tim, you know, you know, well, first of all, I, the, the Archibald thing, you know, they just couldn't find a spot for him. I, I, I like them as a player. His speed, what he brought, he's a smart hockey player. He was reliable, could play either side, left or right wing. I know Rick Tockett wanted him when he, you know, when he ended up becoming the coach down there and Josh wasn't playing. I know that was something 
on uh, uh, Talk's radar screen, if you will. But to me, you know, the Penguins are so deep, and if you can't find room for a player, it's better to to move him on. He didn't have a he didn't have a fit here, but uh, I think he'll be something a, a little piece to the puzzle for Rick Tockett in Arizona. But you can't speed is one thing that that the game is all about it today, and that Josh Archibald possesses that. Yeah, and the thing about Archibald, too, to me, Jay, uh, where he would have really come in handy is if they wanted to swing a bigger move, they could have then moved a Haglin, Rust, or Sheary and at least had someone comparable with a marginally similar skill set to replace part of the void of whatever they got in exchange for one of those guys. Yeah, no, it's it's a good point, Tim, because you you just don't know what's coming down or, like you said, what's out there. And and like you said, with Archibald, we really didn't get a chance to – I mean, they know what he's about in the minors. They know what he's – he was fearless, too, by the way. He's a kid that finishes his checks. Uh, and, again, only played three games this year. But that doesn't mean, uh, again, somebody else sees value in him and, and you move on. But I think he would have been a piece that would have been – uh, something like you said, the, the example you use is perfect. He was somebody that you could slot in if something came up, or be a part of a bigger piece. And uh, but now he moves on, and he's going to get his opportunity. And and for a player like that, that's that's what you want. You want a place he's part of a Stanley Cup team, has his name on it, gets a ring, and he goes on. And now he has a chance to further his career in a position where he's going to get a chance to play and prove what he's about. Yeah, when you have a clearly identifiable strength like he does, which is just raw, yeah. flat-out speed, I see a reason to have you. Like Similarly with this Alexiak that they got from Dallas. I don't know what else he does, but at least he's big and he brings some size to the blue line like they had by the end with Ron Hainsey, right? Right, and I think it's it, – it, and Jim Rutherford's just finding another little – look, he's a number one pick for Dallas. It just didn't pan out there. So now he's going to get his look here. Uh, again, you hope he provides that physical a physical presence along with Ian Cole, depending on what is all going on with that. But you, there's, you still need that. It, you have to be tough to play against. Obviously, the game is different. I get that, but you still need to be tough in front of your net, or be, you know, make it difficult when you get anywhere near your goaltenders. Uh, and you hope that's what I'm sure they're saying. Okay, this is what he's he's six foot seven, two hundred fifty five pounds, and I'm sure he's going to provide a piece of that. I can understand the view, Jay, that maybe these moves have been made with the intent of setting up for something else coming. Like, you know, there this might be a yeah. precursor. There might be more moves that follow this, like we just talked about with Cole, or, you know, maybe uh, Jari goes out because they brought in Leighton, and people have been impressed with Jari, so you can get some sort of significant return, but... I'm I'm trying to look for the home run here, and I know some Penguins fans want to see that because they feel like the team is stale and needs to be shaken up a bit. But unless you're trading Sid, Gino, Latang, Kessel, or Murray, I don't know what massive amount you get back. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know that's true. Now you got to think of the money situation, Tim. What you know the cap? We know how that dictates so much right now, too. But to me, an impact. Uh, look, what impacts the locker room, too? What's going to impact the locker room? And you don't just make a trade to make a trade, but you hit all the points. The team's flat right now. They've played so much hockey. They have played so many big games. You're going to have a lull. It's almost a natural fit. But you go through half the season, well, almost halfway through the year, then the views have to change, meaning they're certainly, they've been understanding as a, as a group, meaning that the ownership, management, coaching staff, they don't accept it. Now Now you get to the halfway point, and now things have to change. Now, the trades they did today, is that going to make anybody wake up or, or blink an eye? No. No, it has to be something. You know, if you want to have an impact, a trade that comes down the line that 
you know, it's going to be what's going to shake things up or make people, everybody aware is when somebody who is a figure in the last two Stanley Cups or whatever it might be, and that might be down the line. So, uh, again, Jim Rutherford, I, I believe, isn't going to come out and make a comment about making deals, and what we saw today is all she wrote. So, otherwise, that, that's that's no, there's no impact to that. I believe there could have been, if, but the way they used Archibald, that makes it no impact. He's a player that they used three times in 30 games. We talked about what he could provide, but if that's the trades that you're talking about, there's no impact to the locker room. So, it, to me, it's it's going to be something. And, and and if they continue down this slide, then you know, then you're gonna it's going to happen. Something's going to happen. You don't want to see it happen, but when it goes this way, that's the way it is in sports. Something's going to happen. Somebody's going to move on, and uh, you don't want to be that guy. Jay Caulfield with us, former Pittsburgh Penguin, of course, now an analyst with AT and T Sportsnet. Catch him during Penguin TV broadcast and catch all the games right here, radio wise. On 105.9, the X Tim Benson for Mark Madden. Jay, I want to amplify the point that you just brought up as it relates to trades shaking things up. I'll go back to the 92 trade that was made after the first cup. Recky and Coffee go out. Tockett, Samuelson, and Ken Reggett come here. Of right. course, that was done for um, emotional reasons to the point that you referenced before, but there's also a lot of practicality for those moves. Uh, you tell me, what was, what was the bigger reason why you think Craig made that trade in particular? Was it about shaking things up, or were, were there more practical, glaring needs that Tockett filled, that Shell filled, that y- you needed another goalie besides Barrasso, etc.? Yeah, I also thought when you had that deal, it is tough to part ways with players of that stature. So, And when it happens, you bring something great back. And Shell Samson, obviously, and Jeff Chicken was part of that as well. So they wanted... More toughness on the blue line, difficult to play against. Shell Samuelson provided that uh, chick room, was providing an extra layer of toughness. And so from the blue line standpoint, that's why when you see a big deal, that you see the deal with the defenseman. Okay, he's six foot seven, two fifty five. That's something that's coming in now. If they work with that and he provides this step, that's one piece that you now just got. So that's what you're hoping for. But that's what Shell Samuelson and, and Jeff Chickram provided. Rick Tockett, obviously, he's a, a guy that plays he can play in any situation. He brought toughness. Who's on on the ice every moment? Play with Mario. Be that be that guy that's right there. Different than um, or a guy that was in like my role. You're a fourth line player, and you hope you know if you get tapped on the back, you go out and try and do do something or help the team. Or guys are in that role. Rick Tockett was a guy who was playing power play. He could do any situation. Tough as nails, all these kind of things. That's that piece you were talking about there, Tim. So that's what happened in that deal. And again, you had a part with great players, a great player, and then bring to bring something back. Now you're trying to do the same thing. If that's that something does come up, you're trying to do the same thing, but you have that cap situation to worry about as well. But that's what you're hoping you can find. What's that one niche that somebody provides? And, and I just discussed what I thought. Talk and Shell Samuelson, Jeff Chickren, all those guys, and Ken Reggett, what they all brought to the table. And, uh, and that's what they all did. It's kind of funny, though, Jay, and maybe funny is the wrong word. It's unfortunate, isn't it, that we spend a lot of time this summer saying, hey, how can the Penguins be like the 93 pens and, you know, get 119 points and, you know, roll into the playoffs and just get that one step further that the 93 pens didn't. But now we're looking back at the 92 pens where things were going so badly that they need to shake it up in the regular season to salvage things. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it is. And, it, and you know what, Tim? I, I, I use this again. As a play. I mean, it's very, uh, look, the fans come to every game. They're, the guys are making their, their, you know, collecting their money. 
And it is a tough thing. If you even look at in an 80, you know, you know, the schedule that they have, an 82 game schedule, they're playing these games. It's a grind. There's going to be times when it's not going their way. So what you can't have is a, a stretch of that. And when you get that stretch, that's when you get concerned. Now you're almost at the halfway point. They've been on ups and downs and had some good runs. And we know the early part was, you know, the backup goal to me situation didn't work out. But here you are, and then that's why it does come to this time now. Now you sit there and say, oh, am I out of the playoff picture? Where are we at? We can't let it go too far because now you're chasing. You're chasing points, and that extra point that they give for overtime losses is when that bites. I'm not a fan of it. So that bites you as you're trying to, you know, catch up because teams still pick up a point if they lose in a shootout or overtime. I'm not a fan, especially when you're a chaser. You're really not a fan. Yeah, and they've been losing to lesser teams here too, Jay. It's not like they're accruing points when the schedule is giving them the break to do so. No, and you know that's when I go to that one part. That's why I say Columbus coming in here, you know, good. You know, that's a game that intensity will come up just naturally. You'll feel a buzz in the building. It'll be different. So you need a game like that, an Eastern Conference game. You know, again, yep, they played at our level of competition, and in some cases they were below it. I mean, they, the odd man breaks are, are beating them down, but I think that's just mental, uh, you know, fatigue. You know, guys aren't going to say it, but you never know. You might not physically feel tired, but mentally something's getting to you. So it could be multiple things. That's when you see mental errors, bad changes. That, you know, last night, seven, eight, you know, between bad changes and odd man breaks, uh, there was a better finishing team than what Colorado did last night. You don't know what that score would have been. Or Matt Murray still had to come up big to keep this where the Penguins could try and win this game. But that's the kind of thing that starts to go sideways for you. So I think they'll, they'll eventually regroup, but it still might take something. And I believe the trades we're talking about today will have – that's not the kind of thing that's going to, in my opinion, wake up a locker room. It wasn't anything that anybody – it's part of the sport, and guys understand it. But that's nothing that's really shaking anything up. Final moments here with Jay Caulfield, AT&T Sportsnet Penguins analyst, former Pittsburgh Penguin, joining me, Tim Benson, with uh, 105.9 The X for Mark Madden today. Okay, so, Jay, the, the Leighton thing, the acquisition of him as a goaltender, do you think this is a move that they've done just to add goaltending depth because they let McGuire go in one of the deals, or is he here to now back up Matt Murray because they want to see Jari get more time in the minors. I, I've never been a fan of that school of thought. I've, I've always thought that, well, number one, Jari's ready, and I think he's shown that to a degree already. And number two, he's always going to be Matt Murray's backup anyway. So this notion of, well, we can't have him uh, sit on the sidelines for this. I just don't agree with that. I mean, he's always going to be a backup goaltender yeah. to Matt Murray in the first place. Yeah, and I think he's handled himself extremely well. So and I think, like you said, uh, Jim Rutherford has probably a great plan in his head. And now you've got a veteran in the fold, in the system, and if something goes crazy, something goes haywire, because, look, you never know when a young guy, uh, he's had a great start to it, and then what if it goes sideways? You know, do you have what happens then? And, and then if Matt Murray just gets dinged up, nicked up at the wrong time, you need somebody to come in and you can trust. Well, I think, I think that's a great, in my opinion, a nice, solid piece that's a veteran that's been through it, and now you brought that into the fold, and I agree with you. I mean, first of all, I think once you're ready to be in the minors and play against minor league, the minor league level, not that it's not at an extremely high level of talent, but there's a difference. So a difference between just the, if you ask every goaltender, what, what do you feel? The, the, the shots, the, the release, the, 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 you know, the heavy shots, 
there's so many different things from the American League to the NHL, and goalies know it. So being up there practicing, but you can't sit and be stagnant too long. they got to get him in so he keeps that good feel. But I think the Leighton thing, Tim, to go back to that, I think you just brought a veteran in. If there's at, at any time you need it, a guy's going to be there that's in your system. They didn't have that once Marc-Andre Fleury left and Niami didn't work out. Your veteran stuff presence was gone. Now you had to find a young guy, and Jari's done a great job to, to really seal that deal for the backup, if you ask me. I think the goaltending has largely been good, don't you? I mean, I know the goals against aren't where they want it to be, but I, I've seen a lot of games that were you know, kind of like last night where they lose, what was it, 3-2, to two, but it, was, it, it could have been 6-2. to two. Yeah, that, that, that's what I feel. So, look, their numbers got skewed in the first part of the season. How many times you see the blowout numbers that we saw early on? I mean, they got, it was just a bad, it was a perfect storm to go against you. I mean, the Emmy, he gets thrown in against Chicago. And then they had Tampa twice, and the numbers ballooned. Same with guys plus minuses. It almost take you half a year to try to battle back from that. So I agree. I think at times the goaltending, and maybe Matt Murray might not like his numbers where he's at, but there's been some games where if it wasn't for Murray, Jari, and you look at this, the, what they've faced, and we talked about the odd man breaks. Talked about it last night. Odd man breaks will eventually, it, it'll bury you eventually. You just can't keep having that happen in a game. And nobody knows it more than the players that are playing the game. Sometimes it's just a, a one little, like I said, a mental mistake. They're going the other way, two on one, three on two, or whatever. Or even the late guy joining the rush. Barry scored a goal that way. If you don't sort it out, pick up the right guy, you need your goaltender to make a big save. And for the most part, the Penguins goaltenders have been have been providing that. Their numbers will climb back up, but it takes a lot to get out of that hole there in early on. Jay, thanks so much. Really appreciate the time. Glad we could get you on a big news day with the deals. Uh, thanks for coming on and joining us, okay? You're, you're welcome, Tim. Good to talk to you. All right, that's Jay Caulfield, former player with the Pittsburgh Penguins, now an analyst for AT&T Sportsnet. Make sure you catch his telestration each and every game on AT&T Sportsnet and catch all the games on the radio here on 105.9 The X. Uh, we'll get your thoughts on the Penguins and the deals that they have made. Have you agreed so far with what Jim Rutherford has done? 412 333 9939. Any calls that you didn't get in on the Steelers, if you're on hold before, you can dial back in now. Also, got a little tidbit on talks surrounding Garrett Cole. I'll give you that before the top of the hour. That's next. Tim Benz in for Mark Madden here on 105.9 The X. And now, the super genius, Mark Madden. This is Bob Hope. Hi, this is. How you doing? Oh, boy. Hey, uh, you know what? Why? Call back when you're coherent. The X at 105.9. Brought to you by McDonald's, Tim Benson for Mark Madden on 105.9 The X. Uh, let me give you this quick baseball story before we hit the top of the hour, get back into football. And Penguins talk, what with the trades going on. Uh, we're going to hear from Stan Saverin coming up at 4.35. Also, Martavis Bryant's girlfriend back in the news. You know this is going to be good. I'll have that for you before we get too much further along. All right, uh, let's get to the story from the New York Post about Garrett Cole. Uh, this was from yesterday. According to what the Post has written, Brian Cashman thinks he has what it takes to acquire Cole from the Pirates without giving up their two best prospects, Estevan Florial and Gleyber Torres. Uh, the Yankees in Houston have the players, said one NL evaluator. I don't know what an NL evaluator is, per se, but... The Yankees' talent is closer to the big leagues than the Astros. Oh, well, then it'll be an Astro. We know that. Why am I even reading this story? They want the guys who are further away from the majors. Come on, I should have read further in this. 
Van Rag Sports' John Heyman reported this weekend that the Pirates' general manager, Neil Huntington, asked the Yankees for Torres and the Yankees' top prospect. Uh, the ask didn't surprise many because Huntington has a reputation of being difficult to deal with since he has a hunger to win the trade instead of making a move that helps each side. Really? Where did that reputation come from? Normally it's just, let me give you a guy like Juan Nicasio for free. Where did this reputation come from? Normally isn't it just, give me somebody back so I can make it look good? I don't see Brian Cashman doing that. Not after working so hard to get Torres from the Cubs, said this NL scout of the 2016 deal that sent Araldis Chapman to the Cubs for Torres, a shortstop who will likely debut with the Yankees at second or at third this season. Torres was 21, or is 21, limited to a combined 55 games between Trenton and Wilkesbury last season. Um, so there are other guys in the mix. If it's not him and Floriel, yeah, there are guys like Clint Frazier. Uh, Pirates apparently have some interest in him. Third baseman Miguel Andahar and right handed pitcher Chance Adams. All right, so at this point. Let's get beyond the minor league minutia of each Yankee prospect here and just get to the reason why I think you will see Huntington eventually make a deal with Garrett Cole for somebody that isn't one of their top two guys, or maybe to the Twins, or maybe to the Astros, any of the rumored teams out there. And I think there's a reason why there are so many rumored teams associated with Cole, why there is some fire to this smoke. Uh, a little birdie tells me that the Pirates are more than willing to move Cole. Let me rephrase that. More willing to move Cole than you would think and more likely to move Cole than for the perceived demanded return that is suggested in this New York Post story because they just don't want to deal with the crap. From what I've been able to understand, that Cole um, doesn't, have the same patience to go through the inevitability of having his contract expire and not get an extension than Andrew McCutcheon did. Like, Andrew McCutcheon was very patient with that notion, very realizing of what the situation was, and still willing to embrace the Pirates as the team that brought him into the majors and very much on board with the program and really did want to retire as a Pirate. Gary Cole has... No such desire to do so, from what I've been told. That Garrett Cole would be more than happy to be moved elsewhere, get a deal done before arbitration hits, and be a long-term New York Yankee, Houston Astro, Boston Red Sox player, whoever. You pick. Minnesota Twin, I don't know about that. But wherever the money is going to be, why not just get it down, get it done now before arbitration hits? So they just don't want to deal with the unhappiness, the surliness, the moodiness that they think will come along with Cole and maybe more importantly Scott Boris than what they saw from Andrew McCutcheon. It's just going to be a harder thing to deal with than it was with Kutch. That's a little rumor that I've been it's been passed along to me. And it doesn't surprise me. It seems like it makes a lot of sense. So when it comes to what you're going to get in return, knowing that that's part of the equation here, don't expect the other team's top prospects, nor with the way that Garrett Cole pitched at times. Like You want to see Garrett Cole in the American League East in those ballparks? You think he gave up homers here? What about in Yankee Stadium? What about in Fenway? What about in the friggin' Skydome in Toronto? 
Wow. He's going to be on the DL after the first four weeks of the spring neck watching the ball fly out of those parks. Camden? What are you, nuts? All right, back in 30 seconds. Is replay killing football? That's become very much a talking point here. Were we better off before replay, and do we need to start getting rid of it? And hockey fans, this has been a conversation for you, and you can get in on this too. That's next. Tim Benson for Mark Madden.